Welcome to the Allen Forum, and we're uh, we're going live on Facebook as well here. So uh, if you can catch us, the uh, first part of the show will be broadcasting live on Facebook as well as live on La Reina, 1260 AM and 96.5 FM. Uh, later in the program, we're going to be talking with uh, landowner and farmer Keith Punton. He was also the the lead plaintiff in the uh, lawsuit against the uh, Dakota Access Pipe, against the Utilities Board for giving a, uh, the eminent domain authority to the Dakota Access Pipeline. We'll also be talking with Pam Mackey-Taylor, uh, the head of the Iowa Sierra Club, and we'll be talking with Christine Nobis with Indigenous Iowa. Uh, they've all got a perspective on this lawsuit of the pipeline and what happens going forward. We'll talk about that on today's program. Uh, before we do that, I, I, wanna, uh, I want to talk about the Progress Iowa Corn Feed this is the uh, fourth annual event, uh, you know, started started by a group called Progress Iowa to to feature um, Democratic candidates. And again, for the record, I go to Democratic or Republican events. I have I have I have as much fun at one as I do as the other. But uh, this is a Democratic event, and um, I would say uh, I, th- I think Matt Sinovic, the director of Progress Ro- Pro- Ro- Progress Iowa, did a fine job at pulling it together. We'll give him a rose. Um, I also want to commend whoever made the decision about food because, you know, when Iowans go to a corn feed, we take that word feed very seriously. A corn feed means you get to have two or three, if you want, four ears of corn. Uh, I've known people to have as many as six. Now, uh, at the at a Progress Iowa corn feed a couple years ago, they gave you half an ear. I'm sorry, that's not a corn feed. That's a corn nibble. So, again, kudos to Progress Iowa for figuring that out, maybe thanks to comments and criticism from previous attendees, uh, figuring that out and not putting a limit on how many half ears of corn you can eat. They did break them in half, so <laughs> but my understanding was there was no, you could have two halves or even three or four halves. Anyway, so good for them for figuring that out because in Iowa you don't do a corn feed unless you're actually getting to have lots of corn. So, and again, uh, lots of, uh, it was a good event. It was out on a, out at a barn uh, in Bondurant, kind of a ritzy, fancy barn, not the kind you'd expect to uh, find, uh, you know, there was no hay mow. Um, <laughs> so it's kind of a sanitized uh, uh, suburban barn on the edge of the metro, but it was a nice, nice facility, um, and a lot of good, hardworking people helped make it possible. So roses to them. Roses also to uh, J.D. Schulten, who... Uh, when asked about climate and the pipeline, uh, pr- proposed uh, you know a, a solid solution that uh, resonates with people. He talked about the need for um, doing more with carbon farming, sequestering carbon in the soil, which we have a great capacity to do here in Iowa. So good for him for talking about that. Um, also, roses to uh, R- uh, Rob Rob Sand and Deidre Dejier, two candidates who uh, are running for offices auditor and secretary of state that have nothing to do with climate change but still they they gave honest straightforward answers about things they didn't know anything about uh, and in Rob's case talked a little bit about one thing he could do as auditor relevant to uh, um, increasing the uh, options for solar energy in schools and other public buildings so so good for them for giving being straightforward and truthful answers okay so thistles now as state representative Mark Smith it, it, you know kind of a you know, a casual friend of mine. We served together, and um, he's a nice guy. We, we biked together. But I, I, 
I, I don't pull any punches when it comes to criticism if it's deserved. And when Mark was asked about the um, pipeline, the Dakota Access Pipeline, which has been running oil through Iowa, North Dakota, South Dakota, and Illinois since June of last year, June of 2017, now Mark was asked, so what, do you, what are your feelings about the uh, Dakota Access Pipeline? He said, well, if, it, if they're going to build it, they need to use Iowa labor. <laughs> and I was like, Mark, it's been built, and it's been running oil for over a year and a half. And I wanted to also point out that there was a bill before the Iowa legislature last year addressing the pipeline. It was a bill the pipeline company helped sponsor that would, um, in, in, to a great extent, criminalize nonviolent protest. Labor unions were against it. Uh, civil liberties and environmental groups were against it. And it got a fair amount of discussion. The bill, in addition to criminalizing nonviolent protest, the bill also, um, also uh, in the past, I'll say, I'll refer to it's, it's what it actually does. It, um, it defines the, an oil pipeline as critical infrastructure. That is quite a stretch uh, to say that a pipeline running oil through the state uh, where nobody in the state actually depends on it. It's not like a gas line where we're taking that to fuel our stoves um, or a, a diesel line where we fuel our vehicles or road where we get out and drive or walk or bike on. It's not like that at all. It's, a, it's unique in terms of uh, its use of eminent domain and land to transport a product through the state. So for it to be classified as critical infrastructure was quite, quite a stretch. But my point is there was a lot of discussion about this. And for the minority leader of the Iowa House not to know that the pipeline was even finished, let alone carrying oil, I'm embarrassed. Sorry. Uh, hopefully this will be a, a teachable moment because, you know, Mark's a decent guy. But not to know that is ouch. It's an ouch moment. All right. Let's move on because there's even a greater ouch moment from yesterday's uh, corn feed. Um, a double set of thistles to Congressman Loebsack. Uh, I'm, I mean... You know, I, I was there as press, as a representative of the Fallon Forum, broadcasting on KDLF 96.5 96 FM, 1260 AM. And there were other members of the press there. And uh, it was interesting how this happened. Uh, Congressman Lopesack was standing in front of me during a, a kind of a pre-event briefing by Matt Sinovic. And he turned around and kind of we little waved at each other. And then I saw him whisper to his handler. <clears throat> and, I, you know, I couldn't hear what he said, but I think I figured it out. The handler turned around slowly and went as far as being able to see me and then turned back and then talked again to the congressman. I wasn't quite sure what had been exchanged, but I knew it had to do with, with me. <laughs> and I found out shortly after that because when I asked uh, Congressman Lobsack if I could ask him a few questions, he said his, his aide jumped in and said, no, the congressman's not taking any questions from the press today. He's not doing any press interviews. No, nothing to do with the media. Okay, wait a minute. You're, you're at a big event like this? and you're not going to talk to the media? I have a hard time believing that if a, a media that the congressman regarded as, quote, friendly, or who knows what would fit his criteria, um, that he would have been, had no trouble talking with that, 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 uh, that person. So um, I, I tried to approach him, and I said, well, I just want to ask you a couple questions about the pipeline and climate change. And he said, nope, and he walked away. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, so what if, uh, what if somebody had approached him I mean, I should have asked some, you know, I, I knew folks there who might have uh, been willing to do this. I probably should have asked if they'd go up and talk to him uh, as an individual, as a, as, as just a, a participant, as an attendee. Would he still have ignored them? Well, I mean, I think the reason is, is that Congressman Loebsack, 
uh, has angered a lot of environmentalists in Iowa because he has been supportive of pipelines. He argues that he's in favor of doing something about climate change, but you can't, you can't, um, you can't say you support action to stop climate change while you're expanding the fossil fuel infrastructure. That just doesn't add up. The rhetoric does not match the record in this case. And uh, perhaps that's why he didn't want to talk to me, because he knew I would ask uh, those kind of questions, and he knew his answers weren't going to be very satisfactory. But you know what? Better to have the, cu the guts and the courage to actually talk with constituents about you know, issues that you may not necessarily agree with them on than just to run away. I mean, that is an act of cowardice. Uh, it, it reminds me, honestly, it reminds me of President Trump. Uh, President Trump doesn't like a, a particular member of the media. He'll never call on them. He doesn't like uh, the media in general. He'll bash them. It's fake news. So, um, yeah, that, that was kind of a <laughs> it's not a high compliment at all for me to say that the Congress and Lowe's reminded me of Donald Trump yesterday, but that's what happened. Anyway, um, one more, <laughs> one more thistle for the congressman because he got up. You know, everybody had a chance to speak. Uh, the the, uh, the minor, minor, minority leader in the Senate, Janet Peterson, spoke. You know, Mark Smith spoke. And actually, Mark, when Mark Smith got up and spoke, he did say something favorable about the need for action on climate change. So um, that made up for the earlier gaffe a bit. But uh, other other candidates, uh, you know, Rob Sand. Uh, I mean. <laughs> running for auditor, he probably got the biggest applause of anybody. <laughs> you know? So it was, it was interesting to see the crowd reaction to candidates that normally don't get a lot of play. In this case, it was Rob Sand and Dieter Dugier. Um When Dave Loebsack, when Congressman Loebsack got up to speak, he had maybe five minutes more, maybe six, seven minutes, I can't remember, but the whole speech was about bad Republicans, bad Republicans, Democrats good, Democrats good. It was so... It was it was horrible. It was it was the most partisan. It was the only. Well, I, there were plenty of other partisan remarks made, and I, I get that this is a partisan event. You're going to make some partisan remarks, but to be strictly focused on partisan politics at a time when people are sick of that, you know, maybe this is what's wrong with the Democratic Party. Uh, I mean, both parties have problems. In some cases, they have the same sort of problem. In some cases, their problems are unique. I would say in this case. You know, Dave Lopes, that kind of embodies what a big part of the Democratic Party's problem is. <laughs> you know, uh, you, you, you avoid talking to people about things that are difficult for you to talk about. Uh, you, uh, you, you, when you do have a chance to talk, you basically just, you know, you do this, you, you create this division. Democrats here, Republicans there, bad, good. Or if you're a Republican candidate, you say the same thing in reverse. Yeah, and it just gets so old. People are sick of that. People are absolutely sick of that. That's part of what I think the establishment within both parties thrives on is creating that division and then conquering. Or in the case of the Democrats, you know, exacerbating that division and then losing. <laughs> that's, that's, been, that's been the case. And uh, again, I, I think uh, just an analysis might suggest things are going to be different this time. We'll see. And then, anyway, folks, we'll be back in uh, just a couple minutes talking with landowner Keith Puntany about the lawsuit before the Iowa Supreme Court.
specialty groceries. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan-baked goods, organic produce, specialty cheeses, and hand-selected wines and craft beer. Visit the Lively Cafe for breakfast, lunch, and dinner seven days a week. Gateway Market is centrally located on the corner of Martin Luther King Jr. Parkway and Woodland Avenue. Stop by or visit www.gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market. Good food, great community. Times are tough, and most people are just trying to make their cars last a little bit longer. That's why you should know about Sargent's Garage in Des Moines. You can trust Sargent's to make the right diagnosis and give you a fair price. Whether it's a routine oil change or a major repair, Sargent's always does outstanding work. So don't give up on that old car just yet. Call Sargent's Garage at 246-8149. That's 246-8149. Community CPA and Associates, with locations in Des Moines and Coralville, is the perfect place to go for all of your tax and accounting needs. Community CPA offers a wide array of services, from tax planning to business IT solutions. Call Community CPA today at 515-288-3188 or visit www.communitycpa.com for more information. Hi folks, it's Ed Fallon reminding you that you can eat Iowa-grown food all winter long at Hawk Restaurant in Des Moines East Village. Over 90% of the food served at Hawk comes from Iowa farms and their dishes are amazing. I once brought a guy there from New York and he was blown away by the experience. He said it was like any fine dining you'd enjoy in Greenwich Village, but at one-fourth the price. So don't go all the way to, to New York City when you can enjoy gourmet dining prepared with Iowa-grown food at Hawk Restaurant in Des Moines East Village. Ritual Cafe is located at 13th and Locust in beautiful downtown Des Moines. It's a great place for coffee, tea, smoothies, and a full vegetarian menu. Ritual Cafe also features music on the weekends. For more information, call Ritual Cafe at 515-288-4872. That's 515-288-4872. When it's time to entertain, think of Gateway Market to handle all the details. Gateway offers a wide variety of stress-free options like our cut-to-order cheese and charcuterie and delicious olive bar and a wide variety of chef-prepared dips and spreads. Or let our catering team take care of the entire event, right down to the wine and beer pairings. Our expert floral designers can even customize perfect centerpieces. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more information. Gateway Market. Good food, great entertaining. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. That's Brother Trucker and their tune downtown welcoming us uh, to the second uh, segment of this conversation. We're focusing today on the historic lawsuit that came before the Iowa Supreme Court last Wednesday. Uh, this has been a long time coming. The landowners and the Iowa Sierra Club finally had their day in court. And uh, from here, uh, we don't know quite what the timeline is, but the Supreme Court will deliberate and at some point make a decision. They'll, they'll somehow rule on uh, whether the landowners and the Sierra Club have a case here or whether uh, they're going to side with the Utilities Board and the uh, Dakota Access Pipeline Company. Uh, with me uh, later in the program, we'll be hearing from Pam Mackey-Taylor with the Sierra Club and also Christine Nobis with Indigenous Iowa. But joining me 
uh, on the phone uh, from, I believe, Boone County is uh, landowner and farmer uh, Keith Punton. Hello, Keith. Welcome to the Fallon Forum. Hi. This is uh, great to be here. Great, yeah. So, uh, again, your background. You you farm, you're a, a lawyer, uh, you're a landowner, and uh, you've been opposed to this pipeline from the word go. Right. Um, I spent about 32 years working for the IRS as an estate and gift tax attorney traveling the western uh about 75 percent of iowa um very familiar with farming and what goes on uh, i've been a trustee of the family farmland uh, once my dad died uh, since 1974 so we're working on almost 50 years of ownership of farm ground and we've done all kinds of things uh, from custom farming to raising cattle and everything else so i'm pretty familiar with uh, with the, the farm uh, yeah. side of this thing and so the the, the uh, pipeline company first, like like other landowners and farmers along the route, they first approached you back in uh, twenty fourteen or maybe twenty fifteen. Uh, they actually held their first meetings back in uh, December of of uh, uh, twenty fourteen. Um, carried over uh, into twenty fifteen with their early right away. You know, uh, they did designated a three quarter mile right away and then they did surveying and everything else uh, on into uh, 2015 and uh, from that point on they determined um, uh, an actual route and once they had determined an actual route in that three-quarter mile strip um, after uh, approaching most of the landowners to see who was willing to sign it right and who not then now, they went forward now my impression is that there 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 I know there are nine landowners I believe on the case that's uh, currently that was just heard by the Supreme Court uh, well, actually, there's we think there's twenty twenty plus landowners that actually were taken by eminent eminent domain. Right. Um, there are nine nine parties, uh, like and that includes NILA, the North Iowa Land Association, and 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 others. So there's there's actually a lot more landowners out there than our named parties in the in the lawsuit. Right. Yeah. And uh, and uh, again, even some of those who didn't let the process go as far as eminent domain were dead set against us. They just felt they had no option at that point. Correct. Um, as as um, one of my friends, Laverne Johnson, puts it, uh, uh, a lot of people had the, the, the frame commercial choice, we'll pay you more now or we'll take it later for less, and that's a duress easement. That's not a voluntary easement. And um, as a lot of your, your listeners probably know, um, Iowa is one of those states where land gets handed down generation to generation. So uh, even though there's 910 farm families and 1,257 parcels involved in this, um, a lot of it's fractionally owned where, you know, more right. than one family member right, owns right. a part of it. And, um, and so there were lots of folks, uh, many of them were in, in their senior ages who had some tough decisions about how far they could take this. Yeah, yeah. I know. I, I, I remember talking to people who had medical emergencies and suddenly they were going to get this, uh, you know, several tens of thousands of dollars from the company and they knew they were going to get a pittance in eminent domain process because, uh, you know, they went, I, I mean, I don't know what your situation was. I know landowners who got one-tenth of what they were offered uh, because the commission, the local commission just kind of buckled and didn't, uh, didn't really uh, fight for the higher value that I think a lot of landowners thought they deserved. Well, the, the, the process itself is flawed. Um, the process is they get to pick you off individually. Right. Um, this is a, an 1,100-mile pipeline that, that it, that's a commercial venture. And if this were a 
done you know properly um, this would have been been uh, treated as a commercial ac- acquisition not not an agricultural acquisition uh. in in which case uh, a totally different set of rules on the appraisal process would have would have uh, come into play and uh, instead they got to use what they call the segmented approach on a state-by-state uh, law basis and then they got to approach individual landowners even though if you took any one segment or any one parcel out of it they could, the, the oil couldn't flow so it right. was it's a flawed process from the right, beginning. Right, right. So, uh, again, the Supreme Court uh, held their uh, hearing. Their oral arguments came before the Supreme Court last week, and uh, the courtroom was filled. And I think I understand there were people in the overflow area as well. That does not happen too often. Um, I, I honestly can't testify to that uh, firsthand knowledge, but I, I, th- I agree with you. It's probably pretty unusual. Yeah. But this is a case that had far-reaching consequences. We even had some people from Nebraska. We're fighting the XL pipeline there, right, uh, just right. observing. So uh, you know, I I don't. Uh, I, I what do you what do you see happening going forward? I mean, the court. How, how long do you think they'll take to make their decision? I think this is a decision that the court's going to weigh um, for some time. Uh, I kind of went down and jotted through the key arguments that were that were there, um, and and have given lots of thought to it. Um, the the interesting thing for those people who have not seen uh, a Supreme Court hearing, and this one's up online on YouTube and on your, um, you know, yes. Bold Iowa website, and and um, on a bunch of other uh, on Facebook and some other stuff. Um, if you haven't seen a Supreme Court hearing, this is one to go watch um, because this was participated in by almost every justice, and there's seven justices there where they ask specific questions of of one or both sides. And they really did cover the key arguments because there are actually three different separate Iowa Code sections involved, and they're going to have a hard time putting this all yeah. together. Do you, uh, uh, do, so you, do you do you think do you, do you, any takeaways from what you heard, what you saw? Do you think the Supreme Court uh, has any empathy with the landowners in this issue? Well, I don't think this. I don't think it's a question of empathy. Um, I think uh, the court made made it very clear. Uh, and not only in, in the way they ask questions here, but in prior case law, that it, taking land by eminent domain um, is a very uh, strict process from the way they interpret it. Um, there were questions that were asked about what's the difference between public use and convenience and necessity. Okay, convenience and necessity being the term used in the eminent domain statute 479B16. Um, and I think the court's questioning made it very clear that for, for constitutional purposes, since Article One, Section 18 of our Iowa Constitution says ownership of land is a fundamental right, um, yeah, that uh, they're going to look at this uh, very, very closely. Now, the, the term used in the court proceeding was inalienable right, which comes from the Establishment Clause of our, our Constitution, the very first you know part of it. So um, I don't see this as, as uh, going uh, any particular way at this point, but I, I do see this as uh, uh, an issue that the court is going to take very, very seriously. They, they did a lot of questioning on the other side about um, why the Iowa Utility Board was granted the right with, under convenience and necessity, uh, where there is no, 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 apparently no clear direction from the uh, legislature as to what those, those words mean why the Iowa Utility Board was was able to make that determination as opposed to the Supreme Court. And there's some other interesting questions that were raised 
um, that um, seem to me uh, to raise a lot of uh, constitutional questions that the court's going to deal with. Right. And so how long do you think they'll deliberate before they make a ruling? Well, we, land orders would like sooner than later. Um, it would not surprise me if this goes into December or on into the first of the year. Um, just because of the volume of information, there were over 3,500 pages just in the hearing material itself, mm -hmm. and then there were there were tons of briefs uh, that were that were done um, by the individual parties, including myself and Laverne and others at the IUB process. And Laverne and is another one of the on. landowners. And Laverne is, yeah. yeah, and and then of course there were briefs that were done for the Supreme Court hearing itself. So there's a lot of information to go to go through, and those right. briefs are all are all up as part of the. Uh, Puntany versus Iowa Utility Board uh, case that's online at okay. the Supreme Court. Right. Yeah. So I mean, people, if, it's a lot of reading, but if people want to, uh, you know, get a pretty thorough education of this, they can go online and read the read the case and the and the supporting documents. Yeah, there's yeah. tons of briefs up there, uh, back and forth, and and uh, it's yeah. really quite an education. Yeah. Uh, just just reading what how everybody interprets the law in different ways. So if uh, if you win, what happens next? Well, that's that's kind of an open question. Um, the Bill Hannigan, our attorney, asks that the case be sent back to the district court. Um, uh, if the Supreme Court determines that the permit should not be granted, he asks that it be sent back there. Um, obviously, that would create an issue of trespass or uh, at least the eminent domain landowners. Wait, what, what, uh, I'm confused. Why, why send it back to a lower level if the Supreme Court rules favorably? Well... Um, the original decision was by the by the lower court. Um, if if um, it's a question of trespass, then the remedy um, has to be fashioned some way. Um, it, it seems to me there there is an op option that they can send it back for the the lower court to actually structure the remedy, which of course raises an appeal issue coming back up. If if somebody doesn't like you know the remedy, and the remedy in this case is is twofold. One is um, for the pipe to be pulled out of the land of the folks taken by eminent domain, or there's a possibility that that um, the trespass could re be reduced for damages. And there is no law in Iowa on that, but there is Texas law that says that if there is a trespass, then not only is the pipe a trespass, but every gallon of oil that's gone through the pipe is a trespass. Right. And that's right. 23 million gallons a day for <laughs> right, the last, right, since right. June of yeah. last year. That's a lot of oil. So the bottom line is, this is, uh, from a landowner point of view, you've still got a lot of skin in this game, and uh, it's not just a matter of sitting around and waiting to see what the court will do, but to continue to educate people about the importance of the case and the validity of, of your, you know, your perspective on this. Well, our, our work has just begun. Um, mm. We now are, have, are moving on to, uh, some of us still have eminent domain hearings on fair, fair value for the taking, right. which of course would be negated if we win. Um, right because that would be a trespass issue, not a fair value issue. So, uh, all of us that have, have experienced this, either through voluntary or eminent domain proceedings, have remediation issues as to, the, to the, the problems with the soil and bringing the soil back into some kind of productive capacity. And many right. of us have unresolved crop issues and construction issues like tile and other things that are are just waiting to, to be dealt with at some right. future time. So okay. this is this is by no means done. Well, we'll see. Uh, we'll see what happens. We'll uh, not just continue to pay attention, but continue to uh, 
make sure p- people know about the case because it does sound like it has uh, it has importance beyond the uh, pipeline too. In the, in the to the to the extent that eminent domain um, could be viewed more uh, more um, you know more acceptable for a private purpose if the ruling goes against you. So. Now, this is a slippery slope, and I think yeah. the court made it very clear. It, it understood that if anybody can use this for any purpose, um, then far, you might, then, you know, private ownership of private property is non-existent. Yeah. You know, if somebody has a, a, quote, better financial claim to your property and they can exercise that, that's a pretty serious yeah. you know, thing yeah. that all of us in Iowa are, are, are gonna, gonna face. Right. Um, the other thing that, that, uh, I, I would, simply mention to you is uh, this isn't just happening in Iowa it's happening all over America right okay right. in terms of pipelines and eminent domain and, and fracking yeah and, and fracking and and also the recent law that was enacted by the Iowa legislature and others that has to do with critical infrastructure and whether or not you can you can oppose that uh, with your first amendment rights and, right. uh, and and that's you know this this is just a massive massive um uh, kind of an onion that every time you peel a layer back, there's two more. Energy. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, and it's go- it's going to be interesting to watch. Plenty to cry about with that onion. <laughs> All right, uh, Keith. Thanks so much for joining us, folks. We've been talking to Keith Puntany, a landowner, farmer, and the uh, lead plaintiff in the case Puntany versus the Iowa Utilities Board over the use of eminent domain to build the Dakota Access Pipeline across Iowa. Keith, thanks so much for joining us. And thank you very much. And again, this. This is up on YouTube, KHOI Radio, Sprouts Radio, Facebook, and on Bold Iowa's website. All right. Thanks again. Hey, folks, when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation about the Supreme Court hearing uh, with uh, the other um, other group that's involved in that uh, court case. That's the Iowa Iowa Sierra Club. Uh, Pam Mackey-Taylor will be joining us. Stay tuned. We'll be back in just a couple minutes. Hey folks, uh, welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Ed Fallon, your host here broadcasting live from Des Moines, Iowa on La Reina, 1260 AM and 96.5 FM. Thanks to the other stations around Iowa and around the country that rebroadcast this program. And you can also catch the podcast of the show later today on the Fallon Forum website. Later in the program, Christine Nobus with Indigenous Iowa joining us as we continue our focus today on the lawsuit before the Iowa Supreme Court brought by landowners and the Iowa Sierra Club against the Utilities Board, the Iowa Utilities Board, for granting uh, the eminent eminent domain and the permission to build the Dakota Access Pipeline. Uh, With me now on the phone is uh, Pam uh, Pam Mackey-Taylor. Hello, Pam. Welcome to the show. Hello, and thanks for inviting me. Yeah, and and, uh, tell us a bit about yourself. You're the uh, president of the Iowa Sierra Club, I believe? I'm actually the acting director. There you go. I got the title wrong. <laughs> uh, and that is a big job. And you, you guys cover a lot of ground. And uh, now with this lawsuit, um, you've been pretty busy. Yes. Yes, uh, this uh, work on the Dakota Access Pipeline has uh, taken us four years' <coughs> worth of effort. And it hasn't been constant, but uh, we've gone from the Utilities Board to the Polk County Court and now to the Supreme Court. And that was just heard this past week, and uh, I mean, I mean, people are. I, we just got done talking with the lead plaintiff, Keith Puntany, and he, you know, says the ruling could be out by December, might be later, who knows? But um, it's uh, it's hard to say. But uh, 
I think one thing I'm hearing is that it's important not to just, you know, sit back and wait, but it's important to continue to discuss the merits of the case. Would that be your your perspective as well? Well, I think it's important to keep the issue in the public. Uh, letters to the editor are appropriate. Um, we may need to have solutions before the Iowa legislature to correct anything that happens. And uh, clearly, eminent domain can happen to anybody for all kinds of projects, and we just need to be aware as citizens of it, that it isn't just a pipeline that can result in eminent domain. It can be anything. Now, uh, again, the landowner's primary concern is that... Uh, their land was taken by force. I mean, I think there are other concerns across the spectrum of farmers and landowners who are, uh, you know, concerned about the pipeline. But is is uh, my sense is the Sierra Club has a broader perspective that includes a strong kind of concern about the environment as well. That's right. We're worried about uh, the environmental damage due to climate change. Uh, there were uh, trees and native areas, native plant areas that were destroyed when the pipeline came through. It clearly affects things like birds and bats and migration. And uh, so we're concerned about those issues in addition to eminent domain. How does it affect birds and bats? So if you take a look at uh, the river crossings, uh, trees were knocked down, and they permanently have to be removed out of the easement area. Right. If you take the Des Moines River Valley, where it crossed near Pilot Mound, there is a huge strip of land uh, that... uh, was filled with trees that now no longer has trees. Some bird species uh, can't have interruptions in their uh, territory. Um, Mature trees were taken down, and those mature trees are used by all kinds of birds. And so um, the habitat was destroyed. Okay. And so I think uh, there's a lot of local concerns like that, too. I think the the bigger concern that a lot of folks have, certainly that we hear uh, reiterated by scientists, is that, uh, you know, 500,000, 500, what, barrels a day of oil coming through the pipeline is going to uh, exacerbate the climate crisis. Okay. I, I assume that's a high priority for the Sierra Club as well. That's correct. And, in fact, our attorney, Wallace Taylor, mentioned that to the judges. And uh, we, we believe that uh, it would be better keeping fossil fuels in the ground and going to renewable energy, um, for example, wind and solar, electric vehicles are a good choice, or hybrid vehicles. Uh, so migrating away from uh, heavy use of fossil fuels and uh, taking a lighter approach to our use of energy. Okay, so uh, is do you think climate change is likely to be uh, considered by the justices when they make their decision on this case? It's hard to know what they're going to decide. Uh, Clearly, it was an issue that was brought up. Um, Safety of rail versus uh, pipelines was brought up. Uh, The issues of whether it is a real convenience and necessity is going to be a big issue. And it's hard to know what the uh, judges will will consider. Okay, yeah. So what's your take in terms of the likelihood of when the case will be decided? Oh, it could be months. Um, many months. I doubt that it'll be done uh, quickly, uh, and I think the longer that it's uh, being considered, uh, the better, because uh, the decision has an opportunity to be fairly uh, considered and well briefed. Yeah. So, what can uh, what, what what can see what what is Sierra Club? What what are your members going to be doing to help continue to see that uh, people you know understand the importance of the case? 
Uh, well, we're going to continue talking about it, uh, writing letters. We're going to be talking with legislators about what the issues are. And, uh, and we have a newsletter that goes out every month. Mm-hmm. And uh, the end of this month, we'll have uh, several articles about the pipeline yeah. case. And y- you mentioned a possible legislative solution. What, did you, what do you see in that, that capacity? So I think we need to really thoroughly uh, think about uh, what we do with eminent domain, how we fairly treat the landowners. Uh, through the eminent domain process, and I think we also need to think about how the the landowners are taken care of once the pipeline or another project uh, goes through their land. In this case, uh, the landowners are facing serious mm-hmm. problems trying to uh, bring the uh, land back to uh, it's productive, full productive status. They're right. finding compaction of soil right. and all kinds of problems. Now, one thing that happened last year during the Iowa legislative session was the uh, pipeline company, uh, Dakota Access Energy Transfer Partners, uh, and others uh, sponsored a bill. Uh, it criminalized protests, which, uh, <laughs> which brought the unions into opposition to the bill, along with civil liberties union, environmental groups. But um, it, uh, I, I, to me, the, the, the most important thing the bill did was to uh, categorize an oil pipeline running through Iowa as part of the critical infrastructure. And that point was ma- raised during the trial, during the hearing, rather, by one of the lawyers for Dakota Access. And I, I think that was, that was instructive. They're, they're, trying to, they're trying to argue, based on a bill passed this year, uh, that the definition of critical infrastructure is relevant previously, retroactively. And so I, d- I don't know how that would play into the justice's um, decision. Um, but, you know, f- f- the way I see it, it was clearly a political move on the part of the pipeline to create that definition in order to justify you know, their existence as critical. Well, I think they're using that a lot of ways. I think they're using that uh, to get their eminent domain. I think they're using that to uh, uh, ensure that they uh, continue to have their permit. Uh, and uh, anytime they'll use that, um, they, they'll use that as one of their uh, playing cards. Um, I'm real concerned uh, on an ongoing basis on that critical infrastructure bill because it could still sweep up people who are innocently protesting and, um, I, and charge them with hefty fines, right. a felony. And I think, to be quite honest, the legislature needs to take another look yeah. at that. Well, and they might. Who knows? We'll see. We'll have a different legislature next year, and who knows what it will do. That's yeah. right. <laughs> All right, Pam, thanks so much for joining us, folks. We've been talking with Pam uh, Mackey-Taylor, the uh, director of the Iowa Sierra Club. Thanks, Pam. Thank you. All right. Hey, uh, I want to take a second to thank uh, two of the local sponsors who helped make this program possible. Uh, Catering by Sid. Uh, Sid Cohn is the uh, chef and brains behind Catering by Sid. She uses a lot of local fresh ingredients, and every one of her catering arrangements is custom-made. Thanks also to uh, Story County Veterinary Clinic. Uh, Story County Veterinary Clinic is operated by Dr. Kim Holding, who has been treating large and small critters for over 30 years. Uh, Everything shy of an elephant, uh, you can give Kim a call for your pet's needs at Story County Veterinary Clinic. Okay, so uh, next on the program, I'm going to go to our phone lines again and welcome Christine Nobis to the show. Christine is with with Indigenous Iowa, and and she's been um, fighting the pipeline as well and bringing an important perspective to it that... uh, that uh, has been missing, I think, in some of the previous conversations on on these kinds of issues. Hello, Christine. Welcome to the show. Hi, Ed. How are you? Good. Yeah. So, 
You were there uh, last Wednesday when the Supreme Court heard the arguments about the, uh, the, the, the lawsuit relevant to the pipeline. Uh, what are your thoughts about that, and where, you know, where do you see the indigenous communities of Iowa going forward with this? Um, I think that our indigenous people can make a real statement in this case if we were given the opportunity uh, because we um, basically, in my opinion, uh, still own a lot of the property in this country, technically, if you're lo- to look at our treaties and, um, you know, what we have a say in, in terms of right. land use. Uh, and then, like, according to John Dorshuk, um the vast majority of land in Iowa is privately owned, but that doesn't mean that that land is still not sitting uh, on a treaty treaty territory um and and for instance um uh, you know we we do know that uh the dakota access pipeline company did not do uh proper in um archaeological surveys when putting in this pipeline right um, yeah. So what what do we do about that? I, I know that I know that the, one of uh, the indigenous leaders from Nebraska, Frank Lemire, is looking into that. But uh, what if it's discovered and proven that Dakota Access did not do appropriate archaeological studies? What what happens next? Well, we we'd have to you know go to the state on this matter because um, the Army Corps of Engineers, right, uh, and and the the Native American Graves and Reparations Act doesn't have a lot of say in Iowa. And this is because, like I said, the, the vast majority of land in Iowa is privately owned. So, like, the, the, the Army Corps of Engineers has say along riverbanks, but, in, uh, you know, I, I don't know to what size of river, but that's, that's basically where they have um, any, any realm in, in, in this uh, particular case. However, Iowa has its own laws concerning the protection of Native American sacred sites, um, and, and I think that these, um, these important laws were only loosely applied. Um, and um, so and until this day, many who fought to protect sacred sites during the construction of the pipeline uh, have no idea what was destroyed. So I think we need to go back and take a look at these uh, Iowa laws that concern uh, protecting graves um, and sacred sites in Iowa and, and see what we can do. But yeah. that would involve uh, speaking with not only the Meskwaki, but there are 26 nations uh, that reside uh, outside of Iowa that still have connections. Wow! So I, I just yeah, yeah, that's that's not taught in school here. <laughs> that's, no, uh, and that should change. That's a different conversation, but that should change. I mean, it's funny, you know, when the, when we when we discuss history in our schools, we tend to start at, at about uh, 1850 <laughs> you know, and, and, well, for, for Iowa and maybe 1492 for the U.S. You know, it's like everything else doesn't matter, which is, um, which is that, not... That just, is history. Yeah. yeah it's, it's, that is, history is what is recorded. His right. story. His story, and right. So, you know, because this, our, our stories have not been recorded by settler descendant society, it's not considered history. It's considered something um, prehistoric. Yeah. So, so that's not that's not taught in school in, in school. It's yeah. not put into our into school books. For instance, my son's class um, at Shimmick Elementary last year, I was looking at a social studies book, and they were telling the story of the foundation of a town, uh, which was, I believe, Seattle, and it started or San Francisco, and it started with the construction of cabins. <laughs> okay. That's what they're teaching in Iowa. Right. 
<laughs> it didn't exist before the cabins. And, and this is very connected to the Dakota Access Pipeline because this tells you what, how people view the land, how, where their mindset is, and, and how they, they feel that they can do whatever they want without any consultation with Native American tribes that have been here and that their sacred land um, is here. Right. You know, um, so yeah, that's, that's very important to know. Yeah, so uh, beyond concerns about the impact on, on our important archaeological sites to not just the Meskwaki, but the other 20, you know, five nations that have had or have connections to Iowa. Well, what are some of the other concerns that you and Indigenous Iowa would bring to this um, this conversation as we wait for the Supreme Court to issue their ruling? Uh, the blatant disregard of, uh, of people's uh, rights to uh, not have something as dangerous as a pipeline go through their land. You mean um, the, you, you disregard of the landowners and farmers in particular? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. the blatant disregard of, of the right of a, uh, a citizen of this state to not have a dangerous infrastructure put through their land like that. Yeah. I mean, I, I can understand a highway <laughs> to some point, you know, but like a pipeline, are you serious? If that, like... We, I don't know if, if if your viewers know about Kalamazoo, but when that uh, tar sands pipeline burst and 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 got into their water, within a couple of years, at least you know I think it's something like up to twenty people now, yeah. and I could be I could be giving misinformation at the moment. But let's just say uh, there's been quite a few people that have died that of, of cancer and right. other strange diseases that yeah. are linked to. Uh, being exposed directly to, first of all, the fumes that were given off uh, at the time, and then secondly to, you know, ingestion probably of contaminated drinking water and uh, touching the contaminants. Yeah, I've I've heard that as well, and that was over a million gallons, I believe, that spilled into the Kalamazoo River. Yes, it's the biggest inland uh, pipeline spill ever. Well, and the the pipeline, the uh, train spill, the the tar sands oil spill in northwest Iowa, uh, earlier this year is also one of the one of the larger ones. Yeah, it's a tar sand spill, which is also called Dilbit, yeah. and the properties uh, of this material are highly carcinogenic and very dangerous to inhale when the the material first uh, hits the air because the um, the the the, uh, the chemical makeup of it splits, and then you get this dangerous um, uh, uh, gaseous, uh, you know. Uh, material that you could, you know, inhale and cause severe, mm. severe issues. Yeah. And so, um, and and they were trying to tell us that this doesn't pertain to uh, trail, or sorry, to um, to train, to, to train uh, when 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 it's being carried by trains because it's it's not being like forced through a pipeline, so they don't have to liquefy it as much. However, to get it into those tanks as well, they do need to to liquefy it to a point because it's it's just like sludge. Right. So, um, right. you know, that's something else to think about. But, I mean, this is all connected. I yeah. mean, <laughs> yeah. we don't want any of this material in our water um, and in, in, in our, on our land. And, you know, we already have an issue in Iowa as the most biologically transformed state in the country. Ninety percent of it is given over to agriculture. We are the number one contributor at the moment to the dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico due right. to the excessive runoff of, you know, of right. everything that we're yeah. spraying on the, the plants here. Other, st- um, other states. really want to contribute, you know, more. 
Yeah. I mean, other states in the upper Midwest have decreased the amount of pollution they're putting into the Mississippi River that's uh, exacerbating the, the dead zone in the Gulf. We, Iowa, on the other hand, has increased the amount of toxins it's put in the in the in the river, yes. which is Our it's, it's, it's like to talk about the Clean Water Act. Honestly, I, I'm surprised, you know, and, and I, I'm saying this on, on on a radio station being brought. We're broadcasting from Iowa. This is being rebroadcast on WHIV in New Orleans, and I'm saying this in particular to our listeners in New Orleans, Louisiana. You should sue Iowa. I I, I hate to have to say that, but <laughs> what what we're doing is unconscionable. And there are plenty yeah. of plenty of voices here who are saying it must stop, but we continue to do it. Your gul- your dead zone continues to grow. Your water quality yeah, problems continue exactly. to grow. Sue us. Sue Iowa. <laughs> Go ahead. Do it. And, and actually, I've been in contact with um, an organization called down there called Another Gulf is Possible. Mm. And, um, and I have. I've had this conversation. I've said, like, we need to do something uh, together to... to, to to make people understand exactly the repercussions uh, that Iowa is having. Uh, It's not just our own state. We have 750 impaired waterways that do not meet the Clean Water Act standards. Last year and the year before, I can't remember the percentage, but there was a a high amount of beaches that were closed that people could not swim in due to um, increase uh, of, you know, resistant bacteria. Yeah, you know bacteria that is resistant to antibiotics like yeah. that. We just don't want to be, you know, and, touching. And, and so we're both kind of off the main topic here. But the point is, there, there's there's a lot of concerns about Iowa's water quality already. And if you put, well, you put a train running across Iowa with with tar sands oil and it spills, you've got problems. You put a pipeline running 350 miles across the state, and it's going to leak. It's going to break. It's going to spill. We just don't know when and where yet. When it does, it'll probably be in one of those key watersheds and probably lead to some very, very serious water contamination and probably ultimately some illness as well. So, and who knows? Yeah, the pounds, the pounds per square <coughs> inch of uh, pressure, like the pressure within this pipeline is, is, is yeah. crazy. And this, this, the, the, the oil that's coming from the Bakken oil fields is highly acidic. Yeah. So, I mean, it's these pipelines that they make, these pipes, they're not, they're not made yeah. to withstand like long periods of this particular... Christine, I got to wrap up the show. I got I got to wrap up the show. We could go on for a long time. <laughs> We're talking to Christine Nobis, folks, with Indigenous Iowa. Christine, thanks for joining us, uh, folks. Thanks you're for welcome. listening today to the Fallon Forum. If you're listening on our community-owned stations, stay tuned. We'll be back in a couple minutes. This is Ed Fallon, your host. back to the Fallon Forum. Ed Fallon, your host here today as we move on to discuss Hurricane Florence. Uh, yeah, my heart is out to the folks in North Carolina and South Carolina dealing with this latest calamity. Of course, um, I know that the uh, state legislature and uh, one if not both of those Carolinas is, um, is, is, is um, populated by some folks who deny climate change is existing, happening at all, but uh, sorry, (laughs) science is pretty clear, and uh, this is exactly what science says will happen. Uh, Larger storms, more frequent storms, um, maybe not more frequent, but uh, certainly larger, and also, this is important, slower moving the, uh, the pace of uh, Florence across the Carolinas is causing an unprecedented amount of rain to be dumped on that state. And uh, 
We'll see where this goes. Now, there are, are lots of climate angles to this. Here's one I hadn't thought about, but um, it's an important one. Of course, it is fossil fuel consumption, largely, that is contributing to the, um, the climate change, uh, the, the ex acceleration of climate change. And, uh, you know, that, that means coal, gas, uh, oil. And uh, in North Carolina, Duke Energy operates, I think, several coal ash landfills. This is the product left behind uh, after, uh, you know, coal production. And um, one of these uh, coal ash landfills is in a mothballed uh, coal-fired power plant on the North Carolina coast. And uh, 2,000 cubic yards of that ash, that's enough to fill about 180 dump trucks, uh, were, um, it were affected by the storm. And that uh, toxic runoff flowed into the uh, power plant's cooling pond. But there's some speculation that it also may have flowed into the Cape Fear River. Now, if so, this would not be the first time this has happened. The, uh, that, that plant, again, that was, that was retired in 2013. And Duke Energy has been, uh, you know, removing literally millions of tons of coal ash from the waste pits around that plant and moving it to uh, safer landfills that, that are lined, uh, that are intended to kind of withstand this kind of assault. And, you know, there are plenty of reasons why you don't want coal ash getting into your water supply, and one of them is uh, arsenic, another is lead, another is mercury. These are heavy, toxic metals that are, that are just, uh, you know, the... the they're, they're not what human beings or any life form wants to come in contact with. So, um, again, this is not, uh, not the first time we've had this problem. And uh, <clears throat> years ago, you know, Duke had, um, Duke had already been kind of, you know, un under, you know, under intense pressure because of how they handled the coal ash uh, problem in, you know, in years past. Um, and they had agreed, they, they'd been fined, actually, and agreed to, to um, plead guilty to nine Clean Water Act violations. They, they agreed to pay $102 million in fines and restitution. This is for illegally discharging uh, coal ash uh, from five North, North, five North Carol Carolina power plants. So it's, um, you know, it's not the only coal-fired power plant you know, you know, ash ash landfill it's, that's been affected by the storm. There are two others that are likely to be affected, um, and so, you know, why? Again, it's kind of ironic that the same product that caused that is causing the climate problem is now coming back to cause additional problems because of the weather that climate change has helped exacerbate. What to do about it? Well, you know, again, moving it to safer locations, uh, that may be the best we can hope for. When these are open, you know, just open piles, and you get these torrential rains, 20, maybe 30 inches of rain. Some are saying as many as 40 inches may fall 
when all all is said and done. Yeah, when you get that when you get that kind of rainfall, an open pile is just is just so vulnerable. It's not even not even there's there's nothing you can do about it. <laughs> so yeah, getting it into a more easily you know securely regulated facility, good idea. Why wait? Why should this even be an issue right now? Anyway, so uh, and for those who continue to want to argue that uh, well it's just a hurricane and we get hurricanes, well, um, the mainstream press is finally starting to talk more about this. Uh, this is an article. An Associated Press article from uh, the 16th of September. Uh, Storm surges are more destructive because climate change has already made the seas rise. And lately, the storms seem to be stalling more often and thus dumping more rain. <clears throat> okay, so as the temperature continues to rise, as the seas rise, as there's warmer oceans, that problem is only going to get worse. The storms are going to get bigger. They're going to go slower. And again... You know, we'll see more problems like we've seen with coal ash in North Carolina. The other problem in North Carolina, by the way, and, then, and this is one that maybe some folks in Iowa can relate to, Iowa is the, the country's largest hog producer, and most of those hogs, which used to be produced in sustainable farms and in small family farms across the state, are now produced by a small handful of large corporate operators. Uh, North Carolina is the second biggest hog producer in the, in the nation. And apparently they've had to move some of those hogs out of those confinements in advance of the approaching hurricane. What I don't know is how they would deal with the hog manure lagoons and other storage systems that have incredible quantities of untreated hog waste. So I, I think it'll be a matter of concern to, you know, we will want to know what happened with that once the uh, reckoning of damages is complete after Florence. So um, back to this article by Associated Press. Again, uh, as it points out, global warming didn't cause Florence, scientists say, but it, makes, it made Florence a bigger danger, and it made Maria and Irma and Harvey bigger dangers. And uh, this quote from, uh, uh, from, I, uh, from Jonathan Overpeck, he's the dean of the environmental school at University of Michigan. He says, quote, Florence is yet another poster child for the human supercharged storms that are becoming more common and more destructive as the planet warms. Overpeck said that the risk extends beyond the Atlantic Ocean and includes Typhoon Manghut, which um, hit the Philippines and as of now, 64 people there have died. You know, some of the stuff we can't control, the genie's out of the bag. We've got to be prepared to deal with it. And again, we should deal with it as quickly and effectively as possible, including, you know, getting coal ash out of harm's way. And the folks who got rich doing this and, you know, are trying to transfer the cost of cleanup to the public need to be held accountable. That's not right. That needs to change. Thanks for tuning in today, folks. This is Ed Fallon, your host from Des Moines, Iowa, on Lorraine at 1260 AM, broadcasting the Fallon Forum from the heartland.